Welcome to High Noon, where we discuss controversial subjects with interesting people. My guest today is Helen Raleigh, who's a writer and a speaker, as well as the author of several books, uh, including a memoir called Confucius Never Said, um, and more recently, Backlash, How Communist China's Aggression Has Backfired. She's a senior contributor to The Federalist, and her articles have been published in The Wall Street Journal, and Fox News, National Review, and a lot of other outlets. Um, and she comes to this with the very unique perspective, I think, of having grown up in China and then immigrated to the United States later in life. So she's really lived under both systems. Uh, so welcome, Helen. It's really great to have you here on High Noon. Thank you for having me. So let's just start with more of the subject of your memoir um, or autobiography. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you grew up, um, what your family's experience was living under the Communist Party in China? Right. Um, so my book actually started from my great-grandfather. So let me give you, because our family's story really began with him. Uh, he was a successful wheat farmer. He owned, a, he accumulated acres, acres of land, even though he was not the richest person in the village, but he was successful. And after the communists took over China in 1949, they immediately implemented a land reform. So basically they took land ownership from all the rightful owners like my great grandfather and distributed it to the poor farmers. Um, the idea was, okay, so now everybody can have land. So my great grandfather lost everything. And there were about 2 million landowners like my great grandfather in China back then. And they lost everything overnight. So my great grandfather um, changed from someone who was able to provide for, for his family into a destitute, you know, farmers with absolutely nothing. But the, the irony was, if you think the poor farmers, at least, were better off, that didn't last very long. In a, in a few years, uh, the Communist Party basically abolished all land ownership, private land ownership, and the nationalized land, you know, uh, land ownership. And so now the Communist Party, even today, still controls land. In China today, nobody owns land. When you buy a house, you actually buy uh, a rental rights for 75 years. Nobody said what happens after 75 years, but you don't own anything. So that's just showed you one way of how the Communist Party uh, aimed to redistribute, uh, redistribute wealth. And so starting from my great-grandfather, um, my family lived in poverty. Uh, it was pretty much everybody else except the party members, pretty much everybody else was living in poverty. And everything in our life relied on the government. Uh, we all lived on food ration systems. The food ration is strictly controlled. So basically how much rice each person can have each month, how much cooking oil, just all the basic life supplies were determined by the government. So each one of us will, would get like uh, food stamps. Uh, unlike the United States, you know, food stamps were for poor, are for poor people. In China, food, everybody has food stamps. It was, the, it was uh, used by the government to help distribute limited amount of food. Um, so a story I mentioned in my book was uh, the, the way the food rationing system, the way how it works is that um, the food was distributed based on age group and the gender. So for the same age, boys and girls, a boy would have about the four more pound of rice each month than a girl. Um, it so happens my name in Chinese was a boy's name. So for a while, I received the food ration meant for a boy. But even with this extra among the rice each month, I was still hungry. Um, I dreamed about the food all the time because there was never enough to eat. And one day, a Chinese police came to our house to inspect randomly. Uh, they can do that anytime in China without a warrant. And he realized the government made a mistake that you know I received actual food ration that meant for a boy. Mm -hmm. So instead of admitting the government made a mistake, he ordered my family to pay the government back um, so my, my entire family had to go on further diet in order to save enough food, stamp to, uh, food stamps to pay the government back. And that story just showed you that if we, can't, if we couldn't even have the basic right to decide how much we get to eat, you know, how, much, you know, how we want to live, and forget about any other kind of uh, political freedom. Yeah, um, how, how did your family end up in the United States, because you've been here, what, for uh, several decades now, 25 years or more, right? 
yeah, about 25 years. So um, not all my families are here. Um, I came here in 1996 as a student um, to pursue a graduate degree. And I, after I got the two master degrees, I got a job offer by the Citibank. So I started working here. And so basically I moved through all, jumped through all the legal immigration hoops. Um, so I be, eventually I became a naturalized American citizen here. So you've really lived under these two systems, um, which is why I think your perspective is so valuable, especially as we move into um, what looks to be a cold war with China, um, or at least with the Chinese Communist Party. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the premise of your, your book, your more recent book, uh, Backlash, is that that we're kind of finally getting it, right? That the West um, or liberal democracies are finally starting to understand that the Chinese Communist Party is not a, um, you know, sort of not an up and up player on the global mm -hmm. scene, that they're not beholden, for example, to a lot of their international promises, um, and, and that they are going to be aggressively asserting power um, in a way that perhaps liberal democracies thought wasn't going to happen if, if we engaged with them economically, right? That, that kind of 90s theory where uh, if, if we would just engage with China economically, yeah. um, then the Chinese party would essentially start to adopt the norms of the globalized West. Um, mm -hmm. And that, that didn't happen, obviously. Um, yeah. So at the premise of your book, uh, and like the title, right, is that this, this response is finally, maybe belatedly, but finally coming together. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess I'd like to ask you why you think that's the case, because that that sounds like very optimistic. And I would I would like to uh, think that the West is getting together its response to China. Right. Oh, by the way, the book was finished uh, before the November election last year. So I didn't know Biden was going to become the president. And right now I'm a little more pessimistic compared to when I finished the book. But I still think that there are green shoots of, like you mentioned, this realization of the the true nature of the Communist Party, who we are really dealing with. So in my book, I mentioned a couple of the wake up calls that the, you know we have experienced recently. Definitely, the pandemic is one, and what's happening in Hong Kong is one, and also um, with all the news come out of uh, uh, Xinjiang about how the uh, Communist Party treated the Uyghur Muslims. I think those three events are really are have become wake up calls to people around the world. And when I talk about backlash, I think people for the rest of the world have waken up more than the politicians and then the elite class. The elite class is still, many of them are tied because of the financial tie, economic interest involved with China, that they refuse to see the light, uh, to, they refuse to recognize the, the true nature of the party. But I think those three events I mentioned has really waken up a lot of the electoral uh, electoral, uh, in, especially in Western democracies. And some, even some governments are taking actions to, for example, um, last year, uh, even, even as late as January last year, the United Kingdom, which was a Dutch ally of United States, United Kingdom still at that time still insist they would use Huawei, China's uh, telecom giant, to build the 5G network, uh, despite the Trump administration word um, UK repeatedly said, if you do that, we're, we're going to stop share intelligence with you because the Huawei internet is not very, or the Huawei uh, 5G networks, it's not secure, right? They share information with the Chinese government, they, they're snooping, you know, your conversations. Um, but, uh, you know, Johnson's government was that, you know, was that said they're going to use Huawei because it's cheap, whatever, uh, as late as January. Um, so then the pandemic happened. After the pandemic happened, after news started to come out about how the Chinese Communist Party, you know, suppressed the dissent, suppressed the doctors who voiced the concern, hide hid information from the world, you know, refused to share information or delay in sharing information. And when, when those things started to trickling out, when countries started to experience, you know, economic uh, lockdowns and economic downturns as a result of the uh, pandemic, um, the Johnson, uh, the, Boris Johnson administration announced in May that they actually going to they were going to drop Huawei from the 5G network. Um, so I, I see examples like that. And another example is um, 
was back in uh, again going back to next year or last year that the, the Australia uh, led a proposal at the WHO basically demand an investigation of the origin of uh, the um, COVID-19, uh, even though China uh, basically have the power control, the, the leadership of WHO, but China wasn't able to stop the, you know, the petition. So actually over a hundred countries signed up, supported support Australia's petition. So eventually, as we know, that the WHO did do some kind of investigation. They didn't really find anything. But the fact over a hundred people, this uh, hundred countries, despite China's threat of retaliation, signed up to Australia's you know petition for investigation. That just shows you. I I do believe that there is a backlash and the tide starts turning. Unfortunately, you know. It, it hasn't turned you know, fast enough. And I'm really worried about the current direction that our country is going. Um, you know, is it going to be effective to you know, stop China from the Communist Party from dominating uh, you know, the, the world uh, and imposing their illiberal system on the rest of us? So you, um, you point to the South China Sea in this book as the potential site for perhaps if there is going to yeah. be a hot war between mm -hmm. the United States and China, that it's likely to come out uh, from the South China Sea. Could you lay out like you do in the book um, for those of my listeners who haven't read the book yet, which you should, you should go buy it. Um, Thank you. Could you lay out uh, essentially um, under three successive administrations, right? You had the Obama mm -hmm. administration, you had the Trump administration, and now you have the Biden administration, um, how that sort of progression of Chinese, uh, uh, I guess the word would be aggression in the South China Sea has proceeded under different administrations. And then um, hopefully you can finish up with what, uh, what would an administration that is serious about countering that threat, what kind of moves would you look for? Right. Yeah, so I, I think that uh, we all need to get educated about the South China Sea. Um, it's so overlooked in today's um, you know discussion. It, it, it's very alarming. So South China Sea is this strategic body of water in East Asia. Uh, it's it's rich with minerals and uh, with um, um, oil and gas, and it's also one of the most important trade route uh, for the countries nearby, including including China. Um, so the so what China is doing, what the Communist Party is doing in South China Sea um, was a, they turned South China Sea into a test ground for their so-called gray zone operation. So what is gray zone operation? As you know, you know, in the past, when, when one country wants to expand their territory, you know, in the past, it was only one way, right? They have to send the military to invade somebody, you know, to do it. Uh, but what did the Communist Party discover in South China Sea? They turned that into a test ground for gray zone operation. Basically, instead of sending military to occupy land, they create land out of nowhere. They, st they start aggressively building, uh, you know, island, artificial island in the middle of the South China Sea based on those, you know, reefs. And they started doing this um, during the Obama administration. And they first built one to test the Obama administration's reaction. At the time, the Obama administration was really eager to get China's support to the Paris Climate Agreement. So even though the, uh, President Obama was um, talking about a pivot to Asia, like you know, United States shifted attention more to Asia than to Europe, but he really didn't do anything. He basically stood by. So China took advantage of that window opportunity within three years, um, they built over 3,000 acres of artificial land in South China Sea. And once they build it, that's the, where the gray zone operation comes from. Um, uh, comes, uh, from. Once China built it, then the claim, those islands as well as the, all the waters nearby have always been China's territory, okay? By doing that, they expand this control to South China Sea, right? So uh, China controls, China now controls 90% of South China Sea. So South China Sea basically from an international body of water before 2015, now to China's backwater. Once China builds those islands, 
you know, China didn't send the military to build those islands. But once China built those islands, now those islands have been militarized. They have radars, they have runways, you know, they have soldiers. And China established uh, administrative district. Basically, they expand their territory peacefully without having to send in a troop, find, find, uh, fire any shots. But right now, those islands are militarized. So what's the consequence of a militarized you know, South China Sea? Well, there are economic consequences. Countries like Philippines, Vietnam, um, Malaysia, countries who used to be able to uh, fish in those areas or try to discover, extract the minerals or oil or gas from those areas, now they cannot do it um, because China would send its navy as well as militarized fishing boat to prevent them from doing that. So it's really hurting because China claims it's their territory, right? So that's hurting the economic well-being of those smaller countries and making them more economically dependent on China, which allowed China to further use economic coercion to compel those countries to do what they want. So that there's economic cost. There's military cost too, because China militarized all those islands. As you know, China has always had this ambition to reunite with Taiwan. Um, if Taiwan refused to reunite with Beijing, Beijing said it will militarily overtake Taiwan. And of course, you know, United States has never, uh, so far has not openly said United States gonna intervene. But of course, there's always concern the United States may militarily intervene, but it's making, but the military intervening in the event of a China invade Taiwan has become increasingly difficult because, you know, United States are not near Asia, right? They ha we have to send our uh, navies send over there. So those islands China build enable China to pr basically build layers and layers of barriers to prevent or at least to slow down the U.S. Navy's you know intervention in the event of any possible invasion of Taiwan. So um, so there's so there's military cost too. And uh, the reason I said it's gonna, you know, it's a very dangerous body of water because um, since the Trump administration, the Obama administration, uh, in the later stage of Obama administration, and the continued in the Trump administration, that the United States Navy insists that, that we have the right uh, of freedom of navigation. So we can send our uh, uh, ships through what we consider uh, international water. And the Chinese Navy has been aggressively sending their airplanes as well as Navy ships to try to stop United States from the freedom of navigation. And sometimes those prevention from the Chinese Navy had become really aggressive. So there was one incident back in 2018 that the US, uh, Chinese Navy and the US Navy ships getting awfully really close. So if there's some kind of accident happened, you know, we are going to be in a hot war. Um, so what should we do? Uh, what we can do are very limited. Uh, militarily, um, because again, those island has already been built. It be, it would be nice how we stopped it after China built the first island, um, but now uh, it's it's very difficult to um, militarize from a military standpoint. It's a challenge. Um, so the positive, what uh, started in the uh, Trump administration, there were a couple of positives. One it was uh, the Trump administration's. Um, openly supported the Hague decision. Um, so what happened in Hague was the Philippines uh, filed a lawsuit to the Hague International Court. They can say, hey, what China was doing in the South China Sea was illegal. They took our territory. And the, the Hague basically decided in 2016, yes, the what the China was doing in the South China Sea was illegal. But the Obama administration never came out to support the Philippines openly. So what the Trump administration did was uh, toward the end of the Trump administration, they came out to support the Philippines directly and openly say, we support the Hague decision. What China is doing is illegal. And so that gave the Philippines more boost and really strengthened the relationship between the Philippines and the, and the United States. Another thing that um, the US government did and the Trump administration was to strengthen the ties um, to build this uh, quad so the Quad is a loose organization between uh, United States, Australia, India, and Japan. So basically, they're, they they basically organize together to try to say, well, in the event they they have a military exercise together, basically as a counterweight 
to Chinese Navy. Um, and as when we come to the Biden administration, the Biden administration most recently announced that they're gonna help um, Australia to build, you know, submarine, uh, nuclear, nuclear submarine. What, uh, what made France very angry and, and recall their ambassador, yes. but I, I actually think it's one of the better decisions of the Biden administration. Yeah, one of the very few better decisions. And so, um, so, so yeah, so military, from a military standpoint, at this point, what we can do is I think two things. One is the continuous strengthening our relationship, especially military corporations with our allies in that region. And secondly, to make it clear that we will defend the Taiwan, when, because we have this strategic uh, ambiguity for the last, uh, I don't know, many decades since Second World War, that we never come out to say we will do that, even though there's a Taiwan Act obligated us to do that, but no administration had has ever come out, you know, say it, right? So I, I think that uh, if anything, now is a good time to say it. To, to So basically, it will force the Communist Party to reevaluate how much cost they are willing to bear if they're going to invade Taiwan, you know, militarily. So, so I think a clear, in, you know, announcing our clear motive, you know, clear intention, as well as, you know, strengthen our cooperation with our allies in that region, really the only two things I think we can do at this point. So much of us has some connection to uh, technology, right? Um, mm -hmm. Big tech companies in particular mm -hmm. and, and the advancements that they're making. So even within Taiwan, um, which I, I didn't know until recently, uh, Taiwan is apparently uh, the largest um, yeah. creator of semiconductor materials, um, which are very mm -hmm. important. And all of the, mm -hmm. the ways in which we uh, tech uses and all the products that tech builds are reliant on this kind mm -hmm. of uh, raw semiconductor material, or they build the chips. I, I'm, I'm very unclear. Somebody is gonna, gonna, gonna tw tweet yeah. me. Somebody in the crypto space probably <laughs> gonna tweet me and tell me I'm an idiot. Um, but there's something very critical, some critical resources yes. in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned that that uh, the UK made the decision to back away from a contract with Huawei. Um, there are, however, a lot like Huawei has made pretty big inroads um, and the 5G. Yes space in Europe is my understanding that there are a yeah. lot of countries saw a lot of advertisements the last time I visited Poland uh, for mm -hmm. Huawei uh, 5G phones. Um, yeah. So, so much of this has to do with the advancement of technology. Um, mm -hmm. What is it like as a Chinese person living now? And I, I think you still have ties there um, living now where the CCP is using a lot of that technology, not only to launch, you know, cyber attacks against its enemies, not only to build mm -hmm. uh, new islands in the South China Sea, um, and not only to try to expand its its leverage um, into foreign countries, but also to surveil its own people in a way mm -hmm. that, I mean, we're familiar with authoritarianism, and there, of course, there have been many different, you know, forms of authoritarianism, but this one truly is a 21st century form of authoritarianism, what is it like actually to live under the CCP now and what kind of surveillance do they do of their own people? Well, so the the CCP basically extended their long arms of censorship and control way beyond their borders. Um, for example, I mean, I do not use uh, WeChat, which is like a messaging app, but many overseas Chinese use it to keep in touch with their families. So all the conversations on WeChat are monitored and the data are shared with the Communist Party. Um, and also uh, the Communist Party uh, either use uh, threats or intimidations uh, to compel some Chinese overseas to monitor other Chinese. Um, this this actually happens especially frightening on college campuses. So uh, one Chinese student told me that um, you know, he, he said something on his, you know, in, in the class, talk about the 1989 Tiananmen Square, which is like a highly forbidden subject in mainland China. Um, you know, he got out of the classroom, you know, a few minutes later, he got a phone call from his family. His family's like, what did you say, you know, in the classroom? Because we got a call from our party, you know, a committee is here, so it does, that's really frightening because they have spies everywhere to monitoring and snitch and report you. 
And another study they've been doing is this is so-called a fox hunt, which basically is um, um, Chinese uh, government sent uh, undercover the police to foreign countries, including the United States. Um, and uh, sometimes we'll bring even family members uh, basically stationed outside of uh, a Chinese dissident's house and basically say, hey, we got your brother here or we have your dad here. You know, you need to come back to China with us. And uh, the Chinese government claim they have successfully uh, repatriated over 4,000 people that way. And even though the claim, the people they repatriated are mostly committed economic crimes, um, but you know you can't take their word at face value. It's very likely they arrested you know dissidents who they disagree uh, with. So yes, that's the challenging for um, you know being uh, Chinese living in other countries because uh, to the Chinese party, it doesn't matter if you have a foreign passport. Um, to them, that they always owned you, they always controlled you. And you, they, they want you to be afraid to uh, constantly come on the lookout that somehow they're going to come to get you. So it is, um, it is a very frightening state. So I would encourage your listeners who uh, be more understanding and patient when they're dealing with uh, Chinese people in their life. Um, I mean, again, not everybody's the same. So just be patient and willing to listen and willing to understand where they're coming from. Um, obviously, not everybody going to agree and think like us, which is fine. That's part of the diversity that we cherish. Uh, but I also, at, at the same time, understand the challenges they're facing, especially if they, still if they still have a close ties, you know, back in China. They may be limited for what they can or allowed to say or do, even in the places that are far, far away from mainland China. Yeah, they're 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 reaching. They're attempting to, of course to use their market power, even for mm -hmm. people who are not of Chinese descent, right? Um, yeah. Famously with the the NBA, right? Uh, they, they um, you know, essentially yeah. demanded Chinese censorship standards uh, to be followed by American basketball players, right? Um, and by an American basketball league. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk a little bit more though about the social credit system in China? Because I feel like we, we throw around that phrase a lot um, in the United mm -hmm. States, uh, and we have some vague idea of what the social credit system is. But can you explain how that actually works and how sort of granular and invasive um, it, it really is? Right. So it's basically a giant database, and uh, it records everything's beha uh, everybody's behavior, and everybody's like like a total point is about a thousand. And so it's not just about the financial credit or whether you pay your bill on time or not, like what do we understand here, the credit bureau, like, a, you know, Equifax or TransUnion. It's, it, it has gone way beyond that. So the Chinese government collected data from like uh, traffic light, uh, traffic cameras, as well as facial recognition, you know, cameras, as well as from a big tech, you know, the, all the social media companies, you know, video game companies, uh, as well as financial institutions. So it's, it's this, uh, the social credit system is, is this giant aggregation of everything about you. And it's really focused on behaviors, you know, and, and it's a behavior that what the Chinese government sanction as a good behavior versus bad behavior. So some of them seems very innocent on the surface. For example, uh, they will punish your points you, everybody gets uh, points, so your points will be deducted if you didn't leave your trash out you know, in the right place or if you ran the red light you know, at the traffic section. So those things you know, innocent on the surface, but there are also other things. For example, if you criticize the Chinese government online, um, you would, your points will be deducted. And so there's, there's, very, there's also well-developed uh, reward as well as uh, punishment go along with the social credit system, which makes it even more, even scarier. So if you behave as the government wanted, wanted you to behave, you know, you can get a better rate when you uh, get your mortgage, uh, you, you are, will be eligible for promotion, your kids may be able to go to better school. Uh, but if you're misbehaved, you know, you're not going to get a good rate on mortgage, you're going to be denied um, a, a promotion, your kids will not go to good school. And you may not even be able to buy a train ticket or, you know, airplane ticket to go anywhere. You know, so basically you're stuck. And, and um, what's even scarier is China is now talking about the uh, issue of digital currencies. 
So that's we're talking about technology. So this digital currency in China's blueprint, you know, vision, this digital China can send the digital currency directly to every Chinese citizen's bank account. And uh, when you misbehave, you know, when your social credit points get deducted, um, they can the government can directly, instead of you writing a check to pay a fine, they can directly go into your bank account, extract the fine, you know, without you have to do anything. Uh, they can also, you know, in terms of um, when they need to implement an economic stimulus program, they can just set an expiration date. Money is in your bank account to force you to spend money before a certain day. It just, it's just a massive, massive surveillance tools, and and all Chinese technology company participate provide the government data. That's why I can't stop warning enough to Americans that do not use TikTok, do not use WeChat, do not use try to use as less Chinese tech as possible because there's no private uh, independent tech company in China. They all have to, by law, submit everything they collected to the government. So you are not safe. So as American, at least we have a choice not to use your technology. So stay away from those technology companies. Yeah, the, the scary thing is um, listening to you talk about this is that although it's obviously way, way beyond what we experience in the United States, it doesn't sound as completely foreign or unimaginable yeah. as I think it would have sounded even, you know, three, five years ago, right? We, we mm -hmm. certainly, the, the, the nexus with the government is, is much weaker here, right? So it's, yes. it's not that we're at the point where tech companies are going to be feeding your information, say to the FBI. Uh, although, you know, even some of those things I sometimes worry about or wonder about right. now. Um, but we do have massive tech companies collecting exactly this kind of data that can tell a lot mm -hmm. about a person. Um, and, and they have this kind of monoculture between them. Yeah. I could see it very easily. And we already have seen it with, with, oh, yeah. it's always starts with people. Nobody wants to defend. Right. So like with, with mm -hmm. people who are white nationalists or Nazis, um, and we've already seen that it's starting yeah. to jump from not just losing your Twitter account or not just, you know, yeah. um, losing your ability to post to Facebook, but your bank account, you can't hold money in certain banks. Um, if, if you yeah. are engaged in wrong thing in some other part of your life, or um, there's some debate over whether uh, some of these, you know, sort of uh, white nationalist guys were put on no fly lists where they can't, you know, travel freely in the country. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when you see stuff like that, and, and you also see some of the rhetoric from the so-called woke left um, mm -hmm. about dividing people, and I think in this country is very much focused on race, um, in mm -hmm. a traditional communist society is focused on class and money. And as mm -hmm. you said, with your, your great grandfather being a, a landowner, um, you know, what do you, what do you think um, when you hear this, this kind of stuff in the United States? Does it, remind you of, of what your family went through? I mean, how do you think about it? Well, absolutely. It's uh, very frightening because I see so many similarities. I keep telling people, um, you know, that's one of my motivations to write, you know, so much is to warn people because, you know, living the socialism once, is, I said, it sucks, right? But I don't know, is there an English word for twice as suck, you know, to, to live in socialism twice? And but definitely in terms of direction our country, United States, because I'm a natural as a citizen. So I, when I say our country, I'm talking about United States. I definitely see their United States now is moving towards a totalitarianism that I'm very familiar with that, you know, so today's United States is going in a direction that's more similar to what's happening in China than many of us care to recognize or wait to admit. Uh, but you and I have this experience, you know, we see, we see it, um, but it's, I, I think the prosperity and the, um, relatively peace that the Americans have enjoyed for so long, kind of, uh, kind of, you know, uh, make it difficult for people to recognize those trends. Um, but definitely, you know, in terms of a big tech censorship, so the big techs basically are doing things that Chinese government is doing to its citizens, but now we just carry it out by big tech. At the same time, it, the, the left are demanding the big tech to do more 
you know, in the names of you know, control misinformation or con control certain you know narratives, and so definitely I see a converging of what's happening in the United States versus what's happening uh, in China. It's uh, it's it's very it's very frightening um, because United States is this uh, like Lincoln's and this last and best hope for humanity because the 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 freedom and the liberty that uh, you know it's being recognized and protected by our constitution and so beautifully uh, described by the declaration of independence you know um so we have this tremendous heritage as americans from our founders and we're throwing it away and we're throwing it away fast and fast and furious and another thing i want to say is socialism is really a process a totalitarianism is a process. I mean, socialism and totalitarianism is really the same thing. But uh, whether socialism and totalitarianism is a process, we are, as Americans, America is already in that process. You know, in, we need to be aware of that. We need to see um, we are already gradually losing our freedom, you know, through the government control, expansion of government roles, as well as, you know, the big tech, big corporations. Um, we all have a responsibility to do something about it. Otherwise, unfortunately, I can totally see that uh, very likely we're going to lose everything we cherish within our lifetime. And that is a very, very scary thought. Yeah, it's, um, I think it's particularly terrifying for people. So I'm, I'm a child of immigrants, but, you know, my parents are also see some parallels. Obviously, they came from communist Poland is slightly different system, but it's amazing how many similarities um, oh, yeah. there, there can be in these wildly different cultures and peoples, mm -hmm. right? It does say something about the ideas and as you say, the process of socialism and communism um, that brings some of the similar problems um, and similar type of experiences in wildly different parts of the globe. Um, you know, especially when you were referencing um, the the WHO investigation into the origin of the coronavirus earlier, I was thinking how much of the Chinese Communist Party response uh, to this, and you lay it out, you have a great timeline in your book um, of this, it, it is almost like a Chernobyl that affected yeah. more, you know, out mm -hmm. um, than, than obviously, so Chernobyl, there were limitations um, mm -hmm but the same kind of mistakes because nobody was willing to accurately tell the truth because the politics and the saving face of the regime had to come first at so many different levels, it, mm -hmm. it turned into a disaster that it really didn't have to be. Um, and, and that it is really remarkable how, how this, these incentives combined with human nature, almost any culture, any people all over the globe you know, ends up with, uh, with very yeah. similar results, really. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, socialism and, to, you know, slash totalitarianism is really just built on uh, beautiful lies, right? It, they, they will tell you everybody will get everything. They'll appeal to your uh, uh, decency, they appeal to your guilt, they exploit your insecurities, as well as um, um, loneliness, you know, in the modern days and try to sell you this beautiful lie, this beautiful dream of, hey, all, all, you, all you have to just break a few eggs, you know, give up a few things and then we're all going to live happily ever after in this utopia. And as you said, you know, there's no socialist utopia. Uh, it didn't happen in Poland. It didn't happen in China. It didn't happen in Cuba. It didn't happen in Venezuela. It's because this ideology is so evil and harmful. And now we're seeing this unfolding right in our eyes, United States. And I always say the left has no imaginations because everything they're doing now, I mean, they may use some new words, they may use some new concept, but the tactic is always the same. You know, they, they, they will create lies and they will create alternative realities and they use the same tactic to suppress dissent. And so I, I hope, I sincerely hope more Americans will really wake up, you know, become a student of history, know everything we experience now happened before. I mean, it's not a carbon copy or what we experience now compared to what happened before, but there are so many similarities because the tactics are so similar. We all need to become students of history, learn about what happened in the past and prepare us 
and you know stand up to push it back it's i i feel like it's already kind of late but if we don't do anything we're just going to be in this fast descent to hell that i don't want to be yeah I, I completely agree with you it's kind of the premise of, of this podcast has been that the hour is late um yeah. sometimes i get super pessimistic and say it's past but but for sure it's for, for sure it's very late um and and uh so we really do try to like focus on um that that concept that these are these freedoms are precious what we have both mm -hmm. in terms of stability and prosperity and in terms of liberty um is extremely rare in human history and is precious yeah. and can easily dissipate um, Reagan always mm -hmm. said, right, uh, the, the famous Reagan quote is never freedom is yeah. never more than one generation away from extinction. And that quote seems so real in a way that Today, it was yeah. rhetoric, I think, mm -hmm. before, at least to me when I was growing up in the 90s. Or, um, But I, I want to close out this podcast by asking you a, a sort of dual question, a two part question. Um, because you, you've always been uh, very careful and, and sometimes instructing the rest of us uh, in being very careful to separate the, the Chinese people from the CCP. And as you, you, you laid out for us, it's really difficult to know how much support the government has because they surveil everybody's life um, so mm -hmm. completely and, and, and punish and reward um, so, so uh, sort of... Um, whether behavior that they want and or or you know sort of dissident behavior they punish very harshly so it's really difficult to tell uh, how much support the CCP has but what do you think Westerners or Americans in particular um, fail to understand first about the Chinese Communist Party itself and the government of China and their goals and then also what what do we need to understand better about the Chinese people on the other hand. Right. So regarding to your first question about what do we need to understand about um, the Chinese Communist Party, we need to recognize that uh, the Chinese Party is not a normal political party. Like what do we think about the Democrats or Republicans? You know, no, Chinese Communist Party is not like that. It's not a normal political party. Um, it's it's a party driven by the ideology, as I mentioned in my book, about the sole ideology of power. You know, it, it wants to get power. And it will do whatever it takes to get power. It will do whatever it takes to maintain power. And so, if you anyone who think that uh, they can, you know, economic engagement or treating the uh, political uh, Communist Party as a normal political power that somehow through diplomatic negotiation we can reach some kind of uh, mutually beneficial results, that's a illusion. And that, that illusion has driven the West's policies toward China for the last four decades. And it's time to wake up from that illusion. So it's not a normal political party. And um, its sole uh, objective is to maintain and stay in power. And it's not just regional power. It's not just power in China. And now with the prosperity that created in the last uh, four, uh, four decades since the market reform, that they are the Communist Party thinks it's ready to gain this worldwide power. And and also, you see an interesting trend in China. What's happening is after four decades of opening up relatively, now under the leadership of Xi Jinping, the Communist Party is actually going back inward, saying now we need to rein in uh, private businesses. Now we need to rein in market reforms because we, uh, you know, uh, they used to say socialism with Chinese characteristics, and now they say socialism with Chinese character characteristic, but still socialism. We need to go back to our socialism route. This four decades of uh, economic reform was just a transition period for us to become a better socialist country. So we have to recognize that the party never, uh, it's never changed, it never will, and it has never strayed away from its socialist ideology. So. That's what we need to recognize. And, and with that clear recognition, that should shape our policies um, and attitude towards the Communist Party. And yes, we should separate the Communist Party from uh, Chinese people because you know there are 1.4 billion Chinese people um, in China. There are about 92 million Communist Party members. So it's not like China has elections. People say, oh, we want this 92 million people representing us. You know, that never happened. 
Um, so Chinese people are forced into this situation. And I think one thing we cherish what's happening in Taiwan and what's happening in Hong Kong before 2019 was that uh, Hong Kong as well as Taiwan both showed you that Chinese people, like all people around the world, deserve democracy, you know, deserve to have their voice heard, deserve to uh, take charge of their own destiny, elect their own representatives, because when they have that kind of freedom, they thriving in democracy. Look at what's happening in Taiwan, right? So for mainland Chinese, though, over a billion Chinese that are so as of now, they do not have that choice. Um, um, so how should we treat them? Well, we need to separate them from the party that they didn't have choice. They, you know, they, they stuck with the party. But also to have to recognize because there are so many people there, there is a, a wide variety of political beliefs. So the uh, party does have nationalists uh, uh, supporting the party, um, especially for younger generations who grow up. All they knew, all they have known in their entire life was this prosperity. You know, this is successful, you know, uh, uh, economic model. That's all they know. Um, what happened in the famine, what happened, you know, in those early years of Chinese people suffering, those history are never taught in China. Not even 1989 Tiananmen Square is taught in China. So many people grew up with no knowledge of what happened. So, so, so we have to be patient, you know, recognize there are going to be people who support party, just like here, there are going to be people, Americans, who condemn the founding of the United States, you know, diversity of ideas. But on the other hand, we also have to recognize that um, um, Chinese people, um, there's a, so, so take a step back. So there is a social contract, unwritten social contract between Chinese people and the Communist Party. So after the uh, economic disasters in the first 30 years of uh, founding of Communist China, uh, through the economic reform, basically the party and the people reached a kind of kind of unwritten uh, agreement. As long as the party continues. Uh, to provide jobs, continues to keep China's economy going, uh, growing, that the people, um, many of them, are willingly accept limited uh, political freedom as long as they can continue to have economic prosperity. Um, you know, many of us probably think, well, that's not a fair trade. You know, you should never do that. There's a famous, uh, you know, Ben Franklin quote about that. But for Chinese people, because you think about Chinese history, it's rather long history. Um, there has been so many disasters in, in uh, happened on this beautiful land. People are hungry for certain type of stability, even if that stability means they have to give up certain of you know, a certain of their political rights. So there are many people think in that belong. Many Chinese people belong in that camp where they say, okay. I'm willing not to be able to vote for representatives. I'm willing not to say whatever I want on the internet as long as my family's well fed, I can provide a roof on you know on our head, you know, still enjoy economic prosperity. So so there's that camp. And then there's there's a, another camp of people who what do you what we would call dissidents, people who, you know, reject this kind of trade, people who say this is not a fair trade, you know, look at Taiwan, look at Hong Kong, you know. We can, we have the ability, and we deserve to thrive, to make our decisions, you know, in a democracy. And they are the ones who's being, you know, suppressed, you know, brutally. Um, so there's a great uh, diversity among the Chinese people in terms of the beliefs and desires. Um, so I think the best way for us to approach is, again, separate the party from the people, always criticize the party, do not condemn the people. Uh, and with the people, especially the people coming into our interactions, it doesn't matter whether you meet them um, overseas or here in the United States, I encourage you know, understanding, I encourage patience, I encourage open dialogue. Um, many Chinese people told me one thing they, when they come to visit the United States, one thing they find is a little bit offensive is people just jump on them to say, oh, you are so brainwashed. You don't know what's going on. Let me tell you. <laughs> okay. Okay. So no one, um, Dale Carnegie basically said, you know, you cannot convince anyone by condemning and criticizing them. So we have to have the grace to allow a open conversation, you know, with patience, with love, 
and to say, hey, let's talk about what's happening in China. You know, uh, do you, are you aware what's you know what's happening with the Uyghurs and how do you feel about it? Um, you know, let, let's talk. I, I think with this kind of a conversation, it will build more understanding um, rather than you know just tr just put everything everybody in the one you know one basket a black and white basket I, I i think that's something as americans we can do a better job of not just treat all chinese people uh in we encountered with the same approach or uh same idea they either have to be one way or another just like united states you know we have americans are very diverse in our political beliefs too so we have to just have that grace uh, to treat them with such grace too I think that's that's a, a great note to close on uh, a juxtaposition between cl being clear-eyed about the Chinese Communist Party and its goals and its global ambitions, um, but but being open to a more nuanced conversation uh, and open to more open cultural dialogue. I guess uh, not to mm -hmm. overuse the word open, but uh, yeah. a, a genuine um, dual cultural dialogue between the Chinese people and the American mm -hmm. people. So, uh, and, and you sit right in the intersection there. Uh, we're, we're, we're glad to, to count you on our team, on Team America here, Helen. Um, thank, thank you so you. much for coming on High Noon. Thank you for having me. And you can find more of Helen's work um, over at The Federalist, where she's a senior contributor, as I mentioned. Um, you can buy her books, uh, Confucius Never Said, which is her autobiography and her memoirs and her family's experiences in China. Um, and then her more recent book, Backlash, How Communist China's Aggression Has Backfired. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez Stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.